Now, this morning is an unusual sermon in that it's going to be technical. In other words, it's going to be a, um, a teaching more than it is an exhortation. There will be some aspects of it that will be, I'll be exhorting you. But I want you to understand that all through the history of the church and all through the period of God's covenant people in the Old Covenant, we have tended as a people to be superstitious. And I want us to enter this time of studying the text by realizing our innate capacity for being superstitious. Now, what do I mean by superstitious? Let me illustrate it in a way that I've done before, I think, with you. When I was back in Wisconsin one year, one of my elders and his wife came and said to me, we would like to buy a Bible for our, for our daughter, for her graduation present. Do you have a recommendation as to what Bible to get? And knowing her and her intellectual capacity... Um, it wasn't an easy question which Bible they should get for her. It should be a Bible she'd read. Um, <clears throat> but then the next week, I was very surprised when they came to me and said that they had already bought the Bible and that they had bought her a King James Version. Well, of all the Bibles to choose today, King James Version is probably the worst if you're dealing with somebody with an intellectual capacity that's limited. You know, people can make a, a strong case for nobody singing anything but Bach. People can make a strong case for nothing but Elizabethan English. But you're up here in the ozone layer and you're making more arguments about social class and intellectual ability and aesthetics than you are about faith in the heart. And I couldn't figure out why they got her a King James. And then they said, well, we got your King James. We got her a King James because that's what she wanted. And I thought, that's the weirdest thing in the world. Why would she want a King James Bible? She has trouble reading, let alone reading words and constructions from centuries ago. And then it hit me. The reason she wanted a King James Bible is because it feels more spiritual. You know, thee and thou and therefore and thus and... You know, superfluity of naughtiness. That's my favorite. It's in James. Yeah, superfluity of naughtiness. And it just sounds as spiritual. It must have to do with God because I certainly don't understand it. Now, I'm absolutely convinced that's why she got a King James Bible and why she wanted one. Because she wanted something that was so spiritual that she couldn't understand it. Because when you don't understand it, then it's really spiritual. In other words, the more exotic something is, the more godly it is. And that's how all of us relate to God. That's our natural inclination. Well, certainly God doesn't have anything to do with you know, bread and wine. Certainly God doesn't have anything to do with water. You know, God is ethereal. God is God, you know. Remember I told you about being at, at, uh, at uh, St. Paul's in London, you know. And the guy turned God into a seven-syllable word. God! And I knew we were talking about the Creator because it had seven syllables. In other words, the less it has to do with our common life, the more spiritual it is, the more holy it is, and the more helpful it will be to our souls. 
Because our souls can't have anything to do with this life. Now, if you think about this as being superstition, and you think about the worship of people around the world, you realize that the world has manufactured religions that are very, very superstitious. So, for instance, you think about IU basketball, it's a religion that's very superstitious. Okay? If you go into the locker rooms of major uh, sports teams, very superstitious. If you don't know this, ask my son Taylor. He'll describe them to you. Taylor, give me one, just one, real quickly, one superstition. Loudly. Not like, give us a specific one, really loudly. Batting warm-ups, what they do before they bat. Yes, specifically. Who does what? They who? Almost all of them tap their arm. Kiss their fingers. And stuff like that, right? Okay, what's the guy that has the real weird ritual when he shoots a free throw? Rip Hamilton, Detroit Pistons. Okay. So sports teams are very superstitious. If you go to an IU basketball game, what about the Rock football? Huh? And so then you realize you're dealing not with a sport, but with a religion. Okay? Then you come to religion and you have... You know, Jesus, look at the temple. Isn't it incredible? And Jesus is so rude, so ill-mannered, so disrespectful, so sacrilegious, as to say, tear this temple down, and in three days, and everybody goes, oh, because the temple was their superstition. Remember Aaron's rod? Remember, it turned into an object of worship. And so you see this theme all through Scripture of the people of God taking physical things and making voodoo out of them. All right. Now, there's no text of Scripture that's been made into more voodoo than the text that we have arrived at today. And the first thing that I want you to understand as we come to the text is that God has been pleased to give us nothing in Scripture about the sacraments. Nothing. Now you say, well, not nothing. And I say, okay, you'll, you'll see how much it is. This is a big book. And I'll be able to get done the text real quickly. Big book. Lots and lots of words. Nothing about worship in the New Testament and nothing about the sacraments. Nothing. Do you realize this? That's where we start. Scripture has nothing about worship and nothing about the sacraments. In other words, the thing that the Holy Spirit has been pleased to give us in the New Testament is ignorance about the method and habits of New Testament worship and what God wants from our worship, except that God wants what? 
Spirit, truth, heart, and faith. That's what he wants. So now let's read our text. It's found in Matthew again, Matthew 26, 26 to 30. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, do you want me to read it again? Would it feel better if I read it again? In other words, you understand how limited what I just read is. And if you go to the other Gospels, there's a couple words here and there that are slightly different, but that's it. Phoenix, that's what the Holy Spirit chose to tell us. Let's pray. Father, through this word, we pray that you will make us wise unto saving faith, which you are pleased to use to give us grace and to save our souls. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, with this text, we arrive at the institution of the Lord's Supper. It's called different things. Some people call it communion. Some people call it um, Eucharist. Eucharist is simply from uh, the Greek word that is used for him giving thanks. Uh, Eucharisto is giving thanks. And so some people refer to it as the giving thanks, but they think it's voodoo if they say Eucharist. Because that signals you that you're ignorant. And that they're Anglican. Right? I mean, this is, this is what we do. You know, we have all these secret shibboleth kind of stuff that we say to each other. And, and it sounds so much more spiritual if you use a Latin word. This last week I was saying I'd like to sing the Gloria Patri occasionally. Somebody says, you in Latin? No, that's just the name of it. Well, why don't you call it Glory to the Father? <laughs> you know? But no, Latin words sound good. Across our country, there's been a movement back to Latin and to English, I mean to Greek, so that people love to call their churches, love to call all kinds of different things by words that nobody's ever heard. No one. Well, here we arrive at the institution of the Lord's Supper. And previous to this point, the meal the twelve have been eating with their Lord has been a Passover meal. Here we see the Passover of the Old Covenant change to the Passover of the New Covenant, what we call communion of the Lord's Supper today. So here we see the Lord replacing the Old Testament, the Old Covenant sacrament of Passover with the New Covenant sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Now, what is a sacrament? A sacrament is a sign and a seal. It's an invisible reality represented in a visible reality. All right. I want you to think about um, the ordinances of the church. One of the ordinances, there are a number, there are a number of means of grace that God has promised to dwell in. He dwells in the prayers of his people, so we know that prayer is a means of grace, right? God is pleased for us to give him praise, and so he dwells in the singing of his people. Uh, it is part of God 
working in us and us giving him glory to sing him praise. Now I'm going to focus on preaching because preaching is probably the ordinance that we have been most impressed on us that preaching is a means of grace. That when we hear the word proclaimed, that this is the principal method that God uses to save souls. How shall they hear unless somebody tells them, unless somebody preaches? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so preaching is one of the ordinances that God has promised to bless with power and with grace. Is preaching a sacrament? No, preaching is not a sacrament. Is Christ present in preaching? Yes, Christ is present in preaching. So how do the ordinances differ from the sacraments? The difference between an ordinance and a sacrament is that a sacrament uses fleshly items. And so preaching, even though I'm here and I'm fleshly, okay, I'm not a sacrament. Because it's the words, the concepts that are used as the means of grace in an ordinance. It's the word. All right. In a sacrament, it's something physical. There are two sacraments. There's baptism, there's the Lord's Supper. Baptism, it's water. The Lord's Supper, it's bread and wine. Right? What sacraments do is sacraments come alongside word and both word and sacrament together confirm to us God's covenant with his people. All right? And so the sacraments are personal in a way that preaching is. And I can preach until I'm blue in the face. If the Holy Spirit doesn't work with you, all right, what I do won't mean anything. It will have no impact, all right? But when it comes to taking the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper does apply to you and you to it as you reach for it in a certain intimate relationship. And without that relationship... The sacrament isn't a sacrament. It doesn't exist. It's gone. Okay? And so when the sacrament is held out, the sacrament is held out physically and it marks you intimately. It marks your faith in Christ because you reach for it. And it marks Christ's gift of grace to you because in the sacrament he reaches to you. Now, it's that second part that a lot of you Baptists have a problem with, and I'm going to push you on it. The sacrament is not simply you making a statement. Jesus promises to work through baptism and through the Lord's Supper. All right? And so he himself is active in a sacrament. But the difference between a sacrament and an ordinance is not that Jesus is present in the sacrament and not in the ordinance. The difference is that in the sacrament, there is a physical sign of an invisible reality. In a sacrament, there are two parties who close with each other through it. God, through Jesus Christ, closes with us. We, as we reach for the sacrament, as we reach by faith, we close with God. All right? Now, when was the first sacrament? There are a lot of them in the Old Testament, right? Well, we'll come back to that in a second. All right. Now, here he is 
at the end of the Passover meal, and in a short while, the blood of the Lamb of God slain for the forgiveness of sins will be poured out. In a few hours, the precious blood of the Lamb of God toward whom all other Passovers, all other Passover lambs, from the bondage of Egypt on, all of them point to him. In a few hours, his blood will be shed and his body broken. The whole Old Testament, from the sacrifice of... Now, what is the first sacrifice? When is the first sacrament show up? Now, you can argue about it, but you can't argue about when the first sacrifice was. You ready for me to tell you? The first sacrifice is in the Garden of Eden. When God gives the word of promise about the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent, all right, the word and then the sign. What is the sign? The sign is the killing of the animals to clothe the nakedness of Adam and Eve. Blood. In the Garden of Eden. Isn't that interesting? And the whole Old Testament can rightly be called a riot of blood. There's blood everywhere. There's blood with the Passover lamb in Egypt. There's blood all through the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. So Jesus now with all of that tutoring, all of that teaching, all of that symbolism, all of that type, Jesus now is in front of them. And Jesus presents himself as the Lamb of God, whose blood is shed for the forgiveness of our sins. This is what's going on in the upper room, all right? The meal proper was over, and now our Savior instituted the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper, if you will, is for the rest of history pointing back to the center of of history where our Lord goes on the cross and pours out his life for us. So the whole Old Testament points forward to the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. The New Testament, through the Lord's Supper, points back, and until he comes again, we remember his death through the Lord's Supper. Everything is pointing to the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, at the outset, we must recognize How little is said in the New Testament about this supper? We wish it said much more. Men have fought over it through the centuries as if much more had been said. But the Spirit of God has chosen to give us very, very little. Matthew 26, 26, and while they were eating, Jesus took some bread. That's all it says, some bread. It doesn't say unleavened bread. You say, well, at the Passover they ate unleavened bread. Well, yeah, they did. But that doesn't mean that was the only bread there. Right? After all, At at Thanksgiving dinner, there's cranberry sauce, right? But some people make the mistake of putting cranberry sauce on the table that doesn't come from a can. Um, They actually use real cranberries, which is a mistake. (laughs) And so at the table, it's quite likely that there was leavened bread also, all right? And did you know... We all have our habits, right? And we think they're superstitious. But did you know that to this day, the Eastern Church never, ever uses unleavened bread? 
And did you know that the Western Church never used unleavened bread until the year about the year 1000? So what does the Bible say? The Bible says he, come on, he took some bread. And so today, what we have is we have unleavened bread. Would it be all right if this was leavened bread? Well, a thousand years of Christians were hurting. If not, he took some bread. All right. Then it says what? The next thing it says is after a blessing. So some people argue about what exactly the blessing was. You wouldn't believe how much ink has been spilled trying to set up exactly what the Jewish blessing would be so we can reproduce it exactly. What does the Bible tell us? The Bible tells us this. It says after a blessing. A, not the. If it were the, maybe we could get a little fixated on it. But it says a blessing. What is a blessing? A blessing is thanking God for what is on in front of us on the table. That's all a blessing is. Thank you, Father, for giving us everything. Thank you for this bread. In Jesus' name, amen. Why do we pray in Jesus' name? Because the Bible tells us to. There it's specific. All right. After, and while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he what? He broke it. So does it matter whether or not we break the bread? Yeah, it does matter. And so... As the Lord's Supper is served, we break the bread. Why? Because when you break the bread, it shows what? It shows the body of our Lord Jesus Christ given for us. He was broken. You say, well, but he wasn't really broken because his bones weren't broken. And we say, again, we're talking about the death. Blood, body. Body ceases to function, right? Blood ceases to be circulated. He broke it, all right? And so we break it today. And he gave it to the disciples. You wouldn't believe all the ink spilled over this. He gave it to his disciples. How are we going to give it to the disciples? You know, what are we going to do? And listen, today, um, you know, at times I'm going to be facetious and sarcastic about it because I want to I use a hat pin to get all the hot air out of us. You know, you can't just deal with superstition by treating it seriously. Superstition won't give way to a serious treatment. All right. And so, well, it says what? It says he gave it to his disciples. So that must mean that we need to give it. And so you come forward and what do you do? Well, you come forward and the priest, not the pastor, not the shepherd, not the minister, but the priest does what? He takes the little disc and he puts it on your tongue. Right? And don't you dare chew it. Alright? All it says is he gave it. It could be that what he did was he broke off and gave to each disciple. It could be he just simply passed it around. However we do it is perfectly in conformity with Scripture, because Scripture doesn't tell us. Okay? And he said, and here you come, roll the drums. This is the big one. And he said, take, eat, this is my body.
Take, eat, this is my body. I was very interested as I prepared to preach this week. I read probably more than I've ever read for any sermon in my life. Just read and read and read. Very interested to read the modern commentaries that is written in the last 30 or 40 years. um, And to see how the modern commentaries have almost nothing to say about this. And, and, And certainly nothing controversial. The most any of them could marshal was some warnings that really we have a very, very basic explanation here there's not much to build liturgy on we shouldn't try to build liturgy that's about as close as you get to anybody improving the text in other words applying it to our lives in such a way that they think that it has some utility to us today and so what you see today are commentaries and preachers totally avoiding anything controversial that says somebody does something wrong and what we believe is what is right. Now, if you go back into the time of the Reformation, you read, for instance, John Calvin. What do you think he has to say about this? Well, let me tell you, John Calvin is not nice. If I were to preach the way he writes commentaries, let alone his sermons, you would think that I had really become a monster. Trust me, his language is unbelievable. He's not just using a hat pin. You know, what he's doing is he's like setting plastics in the inner structure of the Vatican and blowing it to smithereens, calling it demonic, calling it wicked, calling it on and on and on. And Calvin isn't Luther... Okay. Listen, this text has some very important things to say to us today because we're all superstitious. Uh, I think it was Tolstoy who said that when people cease to believe in God, it's not that they stop believing in anything, but they start believing in everything. Now, give me the exact quote, Barbara, would you please? All right, Mr. Chastine, you give it to me. Oh, you don't know that quote? Oh, he has a voice problem. (laughs) I have one too. Does anybody know that quote? Somebody has to know it. David. Yeah. They'll believe in anything. And so what happens here is Roman Catholics get all superstitious on us at this point, okay? It says, take, eat, this is my body, all right? And Roman Catholics say what? Well, what they say is that there at that table that day, as his hand extended to them with the bread, when he said, this is my body, that it actually became the body of Jesus Christ. So now let me show this to you. Here it is. 
and you're at a table, we're reclining together. This is Jesus, and he holds it out to you, and he says, take eat. This is my body. And what happens? All the disciples go, I mean, it's ludicrous. Nobody's sitting there thinking that his hand is transmogrified into the bread. And like if once they get the bread, they've got like a piece of his thumb. I mean, it's ludicrous. This is my body. And they go, oh, looks like bread to me. Now, if you're Roman Catholic or come from a Roman Catholic background or have family that's Roman Catholic, don't think that we're doing this because we want to show you how different we are than Roman Catholics. That's not why we're doing it. What we're doing is guarding the principle of faith. That's the principle that Jesus is illuminating through this. It's not because we think we're superior to Roman Catholics. Let me tell you something. I think Roman Catholics are superior to evangelicals today. Okay? So this is not about us establishing superiority of one tradition or the other. This is to say the Bible is not owned by me as a Presbyterian, and it's not owned by a Roman Catholic, and it's certainly not owned by the Lutherans or the Anglicans or the Baptists. It's owned by the Holy Spirit, and we need to submit ourselves to it. All right? So when Jesus handed the bread and he said, Take, eat, this is my body, the disciples didn't think that all of a sudden... It had morphed into the literal body of Jesus. They didn't think that. There's no indication there that they all gasped and said, I'm not going to eat that. Because if you eat something, what happens? Listen, at the time of the Reformation, they used the words I'm being delicate enough not to use. They used them. If you eat something, it goes into you and then it comes out. Do you think any of them would have eaten the body of Christ if they thought that was the body of Christ? It's ridiculous. And it should not have a moment's thought on our part. It's absolutely ridiculous. And all of history is split over that issue. We all think it's very pious to take everything literally in Scripture, but you need to understand that there are times where the disciples took things literally and Jesus rebuked them for it. Let me give you such an illustration. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 6, And Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. All right? And we read verse 7 of Matthew 16. They began to discuss among themselves, saying, It is because we took no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you understand? They took it literally, and Jesus rebuked them for not having faith. What this means is today when people focus on the fact that it's the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ... Inevitably, they have no faith. Because the 
it's not faith they're focused on. It's communing with the physical body and blood of Christ, and that's what saves you. That's the reason the Roman Catholic Church says that the priest sacrifices. That's the reason why you're taught to go to Mass every day. Because you have to commune with the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. And inevitably, faith is left behind. So Jesus rebukes them for not having faith. Why? Because they're literal. Oh, they're very pious, you know. You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000, how many baskets you took up, the seven loaves of the 4,000, how many large baskets you took up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? But beware, and Jesus said, you know, I'm going to lower myself to, myself to these people. You know, these guys, these dudes, you know, they're, they're simple far, farmers, you know, they're simple truckers, they're simple shepherds, they're simple um, fishermen. And I really do need to be clear in the way I teach. You know, he was evaluated and, and you know. And so the next time around, what he said is, beware of what? Beware of the, the bad teaching and the misleading of the scribes. But that's not what he did. What he says is, how is it that you do not understand that I didn't speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? And then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So, you can take the words of Jesus literally, and you can be faithless. You can also make an error of not taking them literal and being faithless. Other places, Jesus says things, and if the disciples were to think that when Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body given for you, that he was speaking symbolically, right? That's what every disciple there at the table thought. That's what everybody should think. That's what the Bible teaches, right? Jesus often did speak symbolically. And if you think of the whole Old Testament religious uh, practice, there's symbols everywhere. Um, the lamb, the lamb of the Passover, and his blood points forward to Jesus Christ. It's the type, and Jesus is the antitype. All right? The bitter herbs, right? What are the bitter herbs? How about the leaven? What is the leaven? When people went around looking for leaven in the house, did they think that they were going to find sin? <laughs> it was a symbol. And so when you come to Jesus saying what? Take, eat. This is my body. It doesn't require the thought of a five-year-old. A four-year-old can get it. Not even a four. A three-year-old could get it. Oh. When we eat that, we eat the body of our Lord. We commune with Him. We participate in Him. There's symbols everywhere in the Gospels, everywhere in Scripture. John 14, 14. 
4.14, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And what? They're all sitting there going... You know, like they have acid indigestion. Is that what they were thinking? No, it's a symbol. John 4, 13, 32. He said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. John 6, 51. I am the living bread. That's what happens when the toaster pops up. You have living bread. John 11, 11, he said, after that, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen what? Asleep. John 15, I am the true vine. And you are the branches. You know, they all turn into those big trees in, in, in Tolkien. The ants. John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Jesus said, take eat, this is my body. And they knew what it was. They knew that he was the Lamb of God. They ate the lamb. They used the lamb's blood. The blood covered the doorpost. They ate it. They were strengthened for their journey. They were rescued from slavery. And that's what Jesus was saying. Similarly with the cup. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is... My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. So he takes the cup and he hands it to them, okay? And he says what? He says, he'd taken a cup, given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. Anybody got it yet? It's a joke. He took the cup. The cup. The cup. And he gave it to them. And all of a sudden, all the Roman Catholics and all the Lutherans rediscover symbolism. Do you understand? What are you going to do? You're going to get out tin snips, cut it up? You say, oh, no, no, no. He was talking about what was in the cup. Oh, but he said the cup. And you go, oh, well, come on. We all know he's talking about what's in the cup. I go, really? We all know it with the cup, but we're confused with the bread. In other words, look, when it comes to the cup, it's very hard to say the cup is the blood of Jesus Christ. And so all of a sudden, Roman Catholics and Lutherans discover that there's symbolic language. 
And they say, well, no, the cup stands for the wine. It's the wine he's talking about. I say, what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. If you can understand that the cup represents the wine, why can't you understand that the wine represents the blood? Why does it go halfway but stops? If you think this isn't a serious issue, I'm going to read to you. You know I subscribe to a bunch of Orthodox Roman Catholic publications. One's called The Wanderer. I love reading. Every week they have questions. And some of the questions are better answered in that Roman Catholic publication than I've ever heard in the Protestant world. Questions about how to enforce church discipline. Should you, should you not go to a wedding where your sister has been excommunicated because she has married an unbeliever? And they'll ask the question, and Roman Catholics care to answer it. I got the question two days ago in a phone call. Somebody out of state wanted to know whether or not he should have fellowship with his sister because she'd been excommunicated because she had persisted, despite the elders telling her no in a PCA church, she had persisted to marry an unbeliever. Roman Catholics can really help with a lot of these things. But here's the bad part of Roman Catholicism. So they have a question this week. Pope Benedict's statement that other Christian churches are not really churches and that the Catholic Church is the one true church seems rather harsh. I have even heard the word arrogant used. Can you explain what the Pope meant? So this is from, from one absolutely Orthodox Roman Catholic to another. All right? And it's an authority of the church answering. And here's what the authority of the church says. It would be arrogant for the Catholic Church to claim to be the one true church only if that claim were false. But if that claim is true, then the church has an obligation to make that truth known to all since it bears on the eternal salvation of all, right? So far, so good. I disagree, but I kind of like seeing them say it. You know? Never catch Barack Obama saying anything like that about anything. You know? If it's true, you should say it. Right? Eternal souls hang in the destiny. Okay, how do eternal souls hang? When it comes to the Roman Catholic Church, we know these claims sound harsh in these days when no one is supposed to take a principled stand unless it's against smoking or the war in Iraq. But the bottom line is that Jesus is God and history proves that he started a church to carry on his work in the world. History also shows that the church he started. Does somebody have a handkerchief? Yeah, that would be good to use that. The church he started is the Catholic Church. It's true. It is the Catholic Church in the sense of the church universal, but it is at the Roman. This is why I always say the Roman Catholic Church. All right. It was John Henry Cardinal Newman, a convert from Anglicanism, who said this, that to be steeped in history is to cease to be Protestant. In other words, if you know the history of Christianity, you know that the only Christian church in the world until the 11th century when the Orthodox Church was formed was the Catholic Church. And that Protestantism didn't come into existence until the 16th century. You know what I say? I say the Roman Catholic Church didn't come into existence until the Council of Trent. <laughs> See you one? Raise you infinity. 
All right. Do you understand this? This is serious stuff, people. Jesus said that he would be with his church always and that it would last until the end of time. So any church that didn't exist until a thousand or fifteen years after Christ can't be his church. Only Catholicism can trace its roots back to Christ and it would be wrong for the church to deny that it's the true church founded by God himself. Now, so far, so good. You know, they're wrong, but they're gloriously wrong. But now it gets evil. Listen to this. No other church has the guarantee that it will always teach the truth. No other church has seven sacraments, seven channels of God's grace to help us get to heaven. No other church except the Orthodox Church, which lacks full communion with the Bishop of Rome, has the Holy Eucharist the actual body and blood of Christ himself. Without which, Jesus said, we cannot get to heaven. Now listen, that is the Roman Catholic Church. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you know about the Roman Catholic Church. That's what it is. You read the documents of the Council of Trent, which I've read a lot of this last week. That's what it says. All right? That is the Roman Catholic Church. No other church has the guarantee it will always teach the truth. No other church has seven sacraments. No other church has the Holy Eucharist, the actual body and blood of Christ himself, without which Jesus said we cannot get to heaven. That applies, of course, only to those who know that Jesus is truly present in the Holy Eucharist, not to those who are ignorant or disbelieving of this. This is why it is essential for Catholics to go to Mass every week. It used to be. All right. It's the only place one can receive the spiritual food necessary to get to heaven. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. If someone gives us a million dollar lottery ticket, wouldn't we cash it in? Well, Jesus has given us something even more valuable, his own self. Not taking advantage of the opportunity every week or even every day to make him a physical and spiritual part of our lives would be like keeping the lottery ticket in the drawer throwing it away. Only when all Catholics again begin to appreciate the pearl of great price that Jesus has given us in his church will the church and the world be, begin to become a better place. If we didn't put ourselves in God's house every week and open our minds and hearts to his word and to his actual body and blood, we cannot call ourselves faithful followers of his. Now you thought that I was exaggerating, didn't you? You thought I was being unreasonable, controversial, schismatic. You thought that I was being divisive. You thought I was not being tolerant. You thought that I was trying to force a division where none needs be. But the truth is, they're forcing the division. I'm not. This is heresy. Because... Do you know what follows from this? What follows from this are all these little things I get in the mail offering to say masses, private masses for me, for my dead loved ones. What follows is the Sistine Chapel. What follows is Michelangelo painting the Sistine Chapel with the money that is given for indulgences. What follows is the whole apparatus of the Roman Catholic Church 
which teaches you that you can do business with God on the basis of money, on the basis of bread, on the basis of wine, on the basis of kneeling and crawling up the cathedral stairs down in La Ciudad de Mexico, if you've seen it. Don't ever believe Northern Hemisphere Roman Catholicism in America. It's a bogus Catholicism. It has no God, it has no sacrament, it has no mass, it has no doctrine, no dogma, no nothing. And it's never been what the Roman Catholic Church has always been everywhere else. It is not the Roman Catholicism of South America or Central America. We go down to Isla Mujeres, right? You go there, what do you see on the doors? You see little signs on all the doors saying, Protestants, stay away from my house. I once had a famous Christian in... Uh, leader on all the radio stations in our home with her brother and her brother was a missionary in Colombia and in the course of the meal I said to her are you thinking of converting to the Roman Catholic Church and she said well how did you know that and I said well not a lot of evangelicals use the construction the Blessed Virgin Mary And I said, also, you're reading Gardino and and, and other mystic, you know, other also medieval mystics. Immediately, her husband said, listen, that needs to be private. This can't be talked about outside of this room. And her brother went ballistic. Why? Because he had had Christians persecuted and martyred in Colombia by Roman Catholics when he was a missionary there. It wasn't a hypothetical construct to him. It wasn't the kinder, gentler Catholicism of North America. But even North America, if you believe that you have to go to the Mass and you have to have sacerdotalism, you have to have a priest sacrificing Christ over and over again, that's at the heart of Roman Catholic doctrine. Do you know if you don't believe that they sacrifice Christ every time in the Mass? Do you know if you don't believe that? They say, you're damned. That's what the documents of Trent say. I could read them. They're there. This is Roman Catholicism. And so all of a sudden you have a priest. He looks like a woman. He's dressed up like a woman. Because all the apparatus is aimed at magnifying superstition. Everything about the Roman Catholic Church is intended to intimidate you to believe that only they, and only if you give them your money, and only if you give them your body, only if you give them your mind, only if you take their sacrament, will you go to heaven. And if you don't believe me, I just read it to you. It's clear. This is the Roman Catholic Church. And real things matter and are at stake with this. And do you know something, Lutherans? are only slightly different. Because instead of Lutheran saying that the body and blood of our Lord is the bread and the wine, what Lutherans say is that the body and blood of our Lord are above and beneath and throughout and present and and it's called consubstantiation and it's only slightly different from transubstantiation and this was the division of the Protestant world. Because Calvin, Zwingli, they all said, nope, nope, we do not participate with Christ and in Christ through the literal body and blood of Christ in the sacrament, but rather what? By faith. 
And faith is that thing that none of us ever want to deal with. Why? Because faith depends on the Holy Spirit. And I have told you before, and I'll tell you again, the purpose of a preacher is to protect his people from the Holy Spirit. And the Catholic Church does it perfectly. What need is there the Holy Spirit when you've got the priest there and he looks like a woman and he's got all the jangles and bells and incense and smells and bells and all the voodoo. And the churches, they're magnificent. I mean, don't you just feel spiritual when you go into Notre Dame? And you go into the cathedrals and God becomes a seven-syllable word. And then the sacrament and the little bells and the smells and the incense and the smoke. And, and who needs faith? Who needs faith when you've got the apparatus? And listen, if you think what I'm saying is scandalous, you go read Calvin, Luther, Knox, you read any of them. I'm tame. Because they believed that when you were seduced into believing that it's the literal body and blood of Christ that you have to have, that your soul would be in jeopardy because you would be seduced away from faith, saving faith. But today, we've all repented of division and elected a black man. What a joke. He's not black. As any American knows black, he's not. He's not a slave product. And we haven't repented of racism in the slightest. Every single human being who's ever been born is a racist. Sorry to give you the bad news. It's true. You're a racist. I'm a racist. We're all racists. And we're all sexists. And we're all educationists. And we're all classists. And on and on and on because we're born with depravity and our hearts will always make us into something that somebody else isn't. You do it with race, you do it with hair. I don't know why you wear your hair that way. Now, my point is we all have our hairstyle. Every single one of us. My son-in-law, Ben, where are you? Okay, Ben, stand up. Let everybody see your hair. Shake it a little bit first. Right on, dude. Every time I talk to him, I wish he'd cut his hair. You want to say anything equal time? Okay. What? Okay. So here's my point. My point is that we should have fewer divisions where they don't matter and more where they do. Let's not bifurcate and individuate over here. Let's do it over the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And over faith. Faith. Jesus took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples as I in his name give it to you. And he said, take, eat. This is my body given for you. And in the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This covenant, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. All of you drink of it. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he comes again. That's the sacrament. 
That's it. I don't feel in the slightest superior to Lutherans or Roman Catholics. Not in the slightest. Well, that's not quite true. I do struggle a little bit with the Lutherans. <laughs> but not with the Roman Catholics at all. You know, I worked hard to bring Mother Teresa to address our General Assembly one year, and she came. I worked hard to bring John Cardinal O'Connor to our General Assembly one year. He came. I tried to get Nat Hentoff, an atheist, to come, too. I think on many of the issues today, Roman Catholics and atheists sometimes have much, much more godly principles than evangelicals do. All right? But listen, when it comes to the means of grace... It is not mediated through a man dressed up like a woman with bells and smells telling you that unless you take his brand, you're not going to get to heaven. Jesus had, the, Jesus had the Pharisees say what to him? Do you remember in John? They said to him that they had Abraham as their father. Do you remember that? Same, same sort of uh, superstitious sort of argument. And Jesus said, no, your father is what? The devil. Why? Because they didn't have faith. He said, you do not accept the one that God has sent you. You don't accept me, so your father's the devil. In other words, you don't have faith. Not you don't have the right genetic composition. Not that you don't have the right father or mother. Your father is the devil because you don't have faith in God and in his son that he sent to you. This is the work that pleases God. What is it? To believe in the one that he has sent. And so when you come to this table, you come by faith, not in me. Do you know to this day, this is an interesting thing, I never knew this. Do you know to this day that if you commune at the Lord's Supper at a Roman Catholic church with a priest who doesn't intend, intend to give it to you properly, it doesn't matter if he follows all the rules, says all the words, it doesn't matter who's consecrated the host, nothing matters if he doesn't intend to give you the Lord's Supper in a proper way. Do you know that the Roman Catholics say that that Mass is not efficacious? It depends on the intention of the priest. The intention. That's the word. Listen. I'm immaterial to this. I am supposed to care for you. If you come to this table and you don't have saving faith, I'm supposed to bar you. If you come to this table and you're committing adultery, I'm supposed to bar you with the elders... Okay, if you come to this table, you're a greedy man and a gossip, a divisive woman. I'm supposed to bar you, but you don't need me to come to this table. What you need is what? Say it. Faith. Faith in whom? In the Lord Jesus Christ. In his death, his body, his blood given for you.